This is episode 180. Today, we learn how a language policy should be part of our DEIJ conversations. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Do you ever hear people say things like this? This is an English-only school. The language of instruction here is English. English is the language of inclusion. When I hear these things, I want to ask, is English the only language students can use to learn in? Is English the only language where students can express themselves in? This is why a language policy should be part of our DEIJ conversations. International educator Matt Hayden will share what that conversation might sound like and why it's so important for our multilingual students, colleagues, and families. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited to have Matt Hayden on the podcast. We have been longtime friends and we're a fellow international school educators. And Matt has always been a star in the field of working with multilinguals in the international school world. Yet, he has written an article with uh, Alicia Pereras called Language Policy Should Be Part of Our DEIJ Conversations on the, Inter the International Educators blog or the website. So I had to have him on the podcast to talk about that. And so Matt, Bienvenido a la podcast. Thank you so much, Ken. It's been amazing to finally have the chance to, to connect after having sort of followed you for many, many years now, uh, starting with the bathroom briefs. <laughs> it's I think when I, I first um, was tuned in to your work and, and have been a huge fan ever since then. So it's, a, it's an honor for me to. Well, the honor is ours, uh, mine. You were on ML Summit a few years ago, and you just had a baby, but yet you were presenting. And people loved, loved your podcast. Carol, sorry, your session. Carol and Katie were like, who is this Matt guy? We need to have him more on. And we're like, don't worry. I have plans. I have plans. So. <laughs> well, that is one of my favorite uh, subjects that I got to do at the ML Summit. It's talking about uh, doing language learning with our earliest uh, learners because they are primed to engage in multilingual work. So. And it takes an expert to do that. And so anybody who wants to learn more about working with multilingual students who are very young, Matt Hayden is your person. Matt, can you please briefly tell us about how you spend your days and where you spend your days? So currently, um, my partner and I we live in Medellin, Colombia, and we just had uh, our first child uh, 15 months ago. And uh, my wife is also uh, has a has a degree in linguistics, and so our poor child uh, just can't escape. We're obsessed with <laughs> every languaging moment um, that our toddler is making at the moment, and that's been really exciting to. Um, 
I don't want to use the word experiment, it doesn't sound right, but to uh, <laughs> uh, experience, we'll say, uh, language learning uh, firsthand with our own child instead of other people's children. And so that's been really exciting. For the last 19 years, I've worked in the field of education and always in populations with diverse language learners. And so my career actually began as a volunteer teacher in Honduras in, at an orphanage, working with um, Spanish speakers. And then I transitioned into a bilingual school in the United States. And then probably the most formative uh, multilingual learner experience I had as an educator was working in Burlington, Vermont, which tends to be a, a very white monolingual population. And, but Burlington became one of the first cities to host uh, refugees through the refugee resettlement program from Somalia. And so we had a, an influx of Somali Bantu refugees classrooms. And so I was teaching fourth and fifth grade with four um, incoming refugee students, two of whom had never sat in a classroom um, before. And so not only was it a new language experience for them, it was also a new uh, cultural experience, a new school experience. And, and I really learned how inequitable a lot of our practices were uh, for welcoming newcomer families which is the topic of your article. We'll get to there soon. Can you share, you've actually been um, in schools for 19 years and working so diligently with multilinguals learners. Can you tell us a story related to DEIJ and working with MLs? I first want to start with sort of a personal story and because it really set me on the track to want to work with multilingual learners. And so my grandparents um, immigrated into the United States um, in 1960 after living in Poland um, during World War II. And um, when my grandparents came to the U.S., they only spoke Polish, right? And so they were uh, gifted laborers in, in Poland. And then they came to the United States and everything changed. And my aunt was born in, in Germany after the war, but my father was born in the U.S. And he does not speak any Polish at all because the assimilate, the pressure to assimilate was instantaneous. And so in a single generation, um, my family lost its language. And I can remember a conversation um, when I was older with my grandmother, who very eloquently said, you know, I lost myself to save my life. And she was speaking of this, the hardship of having to give up her language and culture and in order to sort of assimilate and be successful in, in the US. And I think one of the biggest regrets I hold in my own life is I never got to speak to my own grandparents in their their heart language. And I don't have a time machine, but I, I, I wish I could undo that. And what I'm passionate about working for today is that we sort of stop this assimilation and language loss and the connection that our students need to their languages, cultures, identity, 
and, and making sure that work is is ever present. And so my sort of teaching connection was my my first year as a bilingual teacher in the United States. And in the state that I was working, it was a subtractive bilingual program. That was the goal due to No Child Left Behind is after three years of bilingual instruction, you come needing bilingual instruction and were put into monolingual uh, English instruction. And so the goal was to use your Spanish at the beginning to then make you stronger in English to then eventually erase and your Spanish. And when I when I first did this 19 years ago, I had no sense of how bad <laughs> of a practice that was. And and specifically remember um one of my students who was a very gifted mathematician and working on a problem on a state assessment and just breaking down in tears and because they knew the answer, but they could not communicate that. And they said, me siento estúpido que no, soy, no sé cómo explicar. So it wasn't, I don't know the content. It was, I feel stupid because I just can't explain what I know. And stuck with me as, well, what is our goal here? Is learning our goal or is monolingualism our goal? And I think the research is quite clear monolingualism should never be the goal. The bilingual brain is better. And so what we need to do is really systematic challenges in education that says one language is better than the other and we all need to be uh, homogeneous. And I think philosophically, if you take people out of the learning space, they agree with that statement. But in practice, there's a real, a real breakdown. We'll talk about that breakdown in your article soon, but I always tell teachers when when I he, when our schools when I see these monolingual policies, I always say to learn another language does not mean you have to sacrifice your own the ones you came with. It's too high of a price to acquire another language at the expense of the one you already have. That's exactly right, um, and like when we look at and this is maybe a bit too political, but sort of, it's a very capitalistic mindset. So you use sort of the word price in a, in, a, in a really relevant way is that, you know, the number one reason programs push often English is, well, you can make more money in your career if you're bilingual and you, and you speak English. And to me, that's not good enough uh, to give up yourself, your identity, and your connection to your family so that you can make a few extra bucks uh, in your in your career. And so we have to yeah, change the narrative um, about what has value in, in our society, I think. Let's actually talk about your article. What did you see in, the, in schools that motivated you to write this article? I had the opportunity, um, having worked in international schools for the last 10 years and then in, in other school settings in the U.S. And for an additional nine years and getting to visit a lot. And you start to see where the priority lies in schools around language instruction, and which is often, you see practices that are unequitable 
like hiring of only quote unquote native speakers uh, because they'll have a stronger command of the language or you see uh, expatriate teachers or English speaking teachers making more money um, than local teachers or you see policies where um, school but everything is published in English um, and the other languages that are represented in that school are non-existent or it can look like posters that say English only zone all of these practices um, promote um, and they promote something that research is quite clear on doesn't benefit our learners so when we take a student's language out of the space, we basically say, we don't just say your language doesn't belong here, we say you don't belong here. And, and that has profound impacts on the learning that our students are able to do. So if we really care about learning, we want the best practitioners, regardless of what their heritage language is, and we want our students to have access to their entire linguistic repertoire, because that is how they make sense and make meaning. Um, and so if we truly want the best learning for our students, we need the spaces where all of our students are welcome, and that includes uh, their linguistic identities. So can you tell us about how equity, inclusion, and justice connects to multilinguals? So when we think about what's most equitable uh, for learners, we know that um, we know about how identity is connected to language and language is connected to culture. That is really the center of our work around um, DEIJ. So we need to welcome all aspects of, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, and it's not just having the diversity present, but it's intentionally including um, that diversity into the space. And so, when we look at working with our language learners, we need to make sure that there are a safe and equitable spaces for our students to demonstrate their entire linguistic repertoire. And so that involves really intentional moves. And when I first started at what was a dual language school, we did an audit of the learning space. And we walked around the classroom and we found over 80% of the posters within the school uh, were in English. Um, and the only posters that were in the other language of the school were like emergency signs and um, policies and procedures. That is not an equitable representation. That sends a very clear message that one language is valued in the space and the other one is, is secondary. And so when we talk about making sort of equitable and inclusive spaces, one of the first things that we need to do is really audit ourselves and hold a mirror up to whatever institution you're working at and verify, uh, because very often, unfortunately, that's not the case. What we say we are and what we think we are and what we believe we are does not actually match who we are. And so I think uh, the first step to doing this equity work and, and promoting a sense of justice in, for our multilingual learners is to have sort of that 
an equity audit with that lens of collecting data and taking a look in the mirror, uh, which sometimes can be scary, uh, but we can't really do any of this work without having an honest look at our institutions and that we're working in. So we work in international schools and parents often say, I send my kids to an international school so they can learn English. And then the result is, sadly, that they graduate knowing English more fluently at a, at a higher command than they do the language of their country. And they lived in, for example, let's just say, I've been in every single country like Laos, the countries that I've been to, I've worked at in Laos, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, kids have graduated living in that country more proficient in English than the country that they're from, the language of the country they're from. What can we do to, to get parents on board to say, no, we're not going, to, we encourage you to, to, to use your language at home with your student, with your children. What can we do? I feel like the role of teacher and, and leader also applies to working with our parents, right? And parents, and just like teachers, they want the best for their kids, but their perception of what is best, it is based on their own experience in school, right? And so um, many of our parents went to uh, some of these international schools or monolingual spaces and they left successful. But what they don't know is what they don't know. They don't know what it costs uh, for them uh, to have had that education or they don't necessarily know that there's a better path forward, right? And so they are the experts in there. They could be dentists or business managers or really great at their marketing because that's what they studied. And we need to lean into the fact that we are educators that have this knowledge and we need to figure out how to invite parents into the discussion and to make them realize that this equitable path of valuing all languages by leveraging the heritage languages because the base of everything else that they're going to learn. And we need to make that clear. So I always use a metaphor when I'm talking with parents and I, and I put up this picture of, you know, an old early computer from 40 years ago, 30 years ago when I was in school and I went to Mavis Beacon with the floppy disk and I went into the computer lab to take typing classes. <laughs> and a lot of parents had similar experiences. And so I say, imagine that you're paying or you're, you've selected this school and you walk in and you see these computers uh, all around the school. And that's what your child's learning. You would be extremely frustrated if we were still using uh, the same technology that existed 25 or 30 years ago. And I said, when I walk into a space and people say they want to hear um, only English in the hallways and in the classrooms, and that's what they want the focus to be, I say, what I hear you asking is for old computers and every single class and to bring back floppy drives, because that's not what the research says, and that's not... Um, what is best practice today? And so parents can very clearly see like, oh, this is different and this is a field that has changed a lot and I don't know a lot about this topic. And then we sort of invite them to understand, you know, what are the consequences of language and culture whilst on learning? They're dramatic. And there's a lot of research that 
tells that story. What are the benefits of having a really strong foundation in your heritage language? Well, the research is very clear. The stronger that heritage language is, the stronger any other language that you learn after is going to be. And so if you really want what's best for your child, you actually want us to sustain the language of your family. And so I think it's really important to be transparent and clear and invite parents as partners into that work. I'm gonna use that metaphor in the future and I will definitely cite you, Matt. That's amazing. We, we don't, we compare um, English only policies to old technology because it is an old technology because the research says well that's not the best and the best thing you could do for your students to learn another language is to for them to be fluent in the language that you're speaking with them in that is a gift you can give us when we're working with kids I've noticed that the kids who are most fluent most proficient most literate in their heritage language they actually graduate and they, they acquire English so much faster than those who are not I mean, the, the Collier study of looking at the, the language models lays it out so clear that a dual language or multilingual in approach has the most long-term benefits. And so I also think making that research apparent to all stakeholders, to your, to your boards, to your parents, to your staff, that sure, there are benefits to short, like short-term, quick gains, to immersion and subtractive models, but we're not in education for the short term. And that's great that you might see more growth from August to June or whenever your calendar is, but we're talking about from kindergarten to 12th grade, and we need to all be sort of playing the long game here when we think about language instruction. In your article, you guided us through what DEIJ looks like at different levels. What does it look like at the ideological level? And so this article really is, is a fusion of working with and my partner, Alisa, who brings so much experience and, and uh, deep knowledge of the DEIJ lens, not fully thinking about language equity. And when we partnered in, at a school together, we talked about bringing in this idea of language equity as well into this framework. So the, the framework of the four eyes um, is something that uh, Elisa brought into this uh, collaboration space that we had together. And so when we first look at level of ideological, uh, ideological the beliefs or the ideas that we hold, I equate this a lot to like, the iceberg model for systems thinking. And it's really getting at what are the mindsets within the system or the institution and that drive the work that you're doing. And so how that looks on a, on a language level, we think about like what that might manifest as is you might hear an ideological statement that well, English is the language of power or status, or if you don't speak with correct grammar or pronunciation, therefore you aren't smart. And it's, so these are value statements that, that, people, that people make. And what we really want to do is encourage people. And in, in the article, we, we pair it with a sets of questions of how you might shift those mindsets and that are 
existent in your learning space. And because, again, I honestly believe outside of the pressure of a school system, if you were to have a ideological conversation with most educators, they would say, of course, I want students to feel valued. Of course, I want their whole identity uh, to be represented. Of course, I want to leverage all of their assets. And um, But then when we put them in this that says, okay, you've got to take this assessment in English. And if my whole class hasn't mastered this assessment in English, there's a pressure from me, from a parent, from a board, from a this, from a that. And, and in all of those beliefs, and then it becomes driven by results, which I am not against uh, measuring results, but I want to shift that ideological framework of how can we measure learning in more than one language? How can we give value to all of the linguistic assets that our students bring in, in this learning space? And so it's not necessarily about um, uh, English or assessment or any of that. It. It's welcoming and elevating other languages um, into the spaces in which our students um, are. Let's move to what, it, what does it look like at the institutional level, at school level? About that lens of the institutional level, we're really talking about the, the policies that maintain those original ideologies. And so if you look at subtractive bilingual schools or English-only schools, uh, they have this value statement that sort of English is the goal. And so then that quickly gets reflected at the institutional level in policies and, and practices. And so, um, you know, a simple example of that, of an institutional English-centric policy is we're gonna send home every single communication in English because that's the language of the school. Or we're going to say uh, English is the language of inclusion and, and therefore everyone must speak English. And those policies are extremely harmful because they are untrue and they don't, uh, they're actually exclusive, right? Saying this is the language in which you can communicate, it does not invite people to communicate. It excludes people from those communicative spaces. And, and we know like that's such an important part of learning. If I'm at the, uh, at recess, great learning is happening there. And, and I need to be able to express that fully. I can remember um, being on a, on a site visit and watching um, a student break down because they were having an intense emotional problem and there was someone who spoke their heritage language that they were engaging in and that adult refused to speak to the person in their language of comfort and because the policy at the school was this is an English only space and so that's traumatizing and for a student to know what they're feeling, to be forced not to express how they're feeling because they don't have the words, who's someone who could um, support that child? And so not only is it, is, it, is it an equity issue, it's almost like a, a safeguarding and wellness issue 
um, as well. And so when we think about uh, the policies, how are they really, how do those policies in our institution maintain a monolingual mindset? Um, and then how do we start disrupting that? Which is, again, we have some of those questions to shift mindsets and to support that work. What happens when a school says, well, English is the language of instruction here? We don't, we're not excluding others, but it's the language of instruction. It's never happened before, but um, <laughs> no, obviously that's a, it's a very common um, question. And I think that's why tying it into this DEIJ uh, framework is really important because um, equitable. And so even though it might be the policy and uh, when we tie it into well, this is actually harmful to our learners and we are all in this system because we want to do what's best for students. The breakdown, again, tends to be uh, and praxis don't align. And so a lot of the language research that is out there is not acceptable um, to your board or to your head of school or to your principals. And unfortunately, a lot of the research is designed for people who have a background in linguistics or who are actively engaged in the field. And so you're having that discussion, it seems like an add on to people. And I always say, you know, there are many things in schools that benefit, you know, a pocket of, of students. But when we talk about language equity, that touches every single student in our ecosystem. And so the, the lens of language has to be a part of all of the conversations because it includes every stakeholder um, in our system. And so making sure that that becomes, or advocating that it becomes the forefront of discussions when we make policies um, is really important. So can you name some of the uh, policies that you encourage schools to adopt to be more um, inclusive of language, uh, multilingual learners? I recommend is setting up a, some sort of institutional statement or guides or framework for translanguaging. So to move from a, an English only or a, any sort of monolingual approach to a more equitable a, multilingual learning. And so take a step back and say, and to this work is recognizing that it is a journey. And so the most important thing is that first step. And so I worked for the school in, for four years and over the course of four years, we saw dramatic shifts from this, a, being a, even a bilingual dual language school from almost an English is privileged to English and Spanish and are at equal status, but that wasn't, you know, clean. <laughs> and so, uh, for example, we opened a space for uh, allowing translanguaging pedagogies to take place. And sort of the first step was we had some really messy uh, examples of practice where really just because students were able to use both of their languages, it, it didn't mean it was great. So, you know, a teacher might have a bulletin board that says, and welcome to our classes. 
And so they were doing what I would call language ping pong uh, because they were trying to create a more inclusive space. And that was their first interpretation. And that was beautiful because they recognized that they had a monolingual practice and were trying to move towards a more multilingual practice, but it was still a misstep. I talked a lot about in years two and three of implementation, that now that we've allowed space for all of the languages in our ecosystem, we need to now move from accidental implementation to intentional implementation. And for me, accidental would be, well, I gave an assignment and now all my students can talk in whatever language they want in their, in their small groups. And so you could walk into a classroom and the entire time students are flexibly using language. And that's really great, but there was not an intentionality piece behind that. Uh, and so it's, there's, there's subtle shifts of, I want you to talk to your partner in a language of choice so that you can access your prior knowledge and synthesize your thinking. In the end, we are going to bring this back to the target language. So really setting up these instructional moves and that made that, that translanguaging policy and a policy shift is really uh, figuring out a way to language into the into the space in intentional and and meaningful meaning. I love that from accidental uh, languaging to intentional languaging. Uh, Matt, let's move to what DIJ looks like at the interpersonal level in terms of working with multilingual learners. When we talk about interpersonal, we talk about how groups start taking those ideologies and institutional statements and uh, basically engaging with one another and manifesting uh, those ideologies and institutionalized um, policies. And so I think a really practical um, example of that is when we see meetings that are happening with a diverse cultural representation. And the default is we're always going to use English, um, even though perhaps only one of the speakers at the table um, doesn't speak the languages that the other people speak. Um, and so for whatever reason, the default is, well, if the English speaker is uncomfortable, we must all speak in English. And, and somehow the burden falls on the multilingual people and not on the monolingual people. And so um, we might also um, see this in value statements um, that play out within our culture. And so, well, you know, these people that um, speak German um, are smarter than the, the people who speak Quechua because the language has more value um, in the system. And so then we automatically make assumptions um, based on these ideologies that exist of kind of a lot of the colonizer languages that hold more value um, in, our, in our societal spaces. Um, and so I think in, in practice with our students, we need to, again, encourage and show value. And then I also, I often think of um, the work by, um, Sims Bishop, who used the phrase uh, 
mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors, talking about libraries and, and multicultural representation and in libraries. But I also think that works for languages in our learning spaces. And so we want to make sure that uh, students can see themselves in mirrors. They have opportunities to engage in their own language in our learning spaces. Uh, they need to have windows into seeing the other language that are out there in the world and why they have value. And then they also need opportunities um, to engage with those other languages in interpersonal ways. And now is easier than ever um, to find a friend who knows somebody who is currently um, I don't know, in Poland, where you can set up a Zoom and connect and have this language exchange and then have honest conversations uh, about the languages that students are using um, and, and really just be transparent with students that, you know, each one of these languages matters, even though it might not be the language that you speak and helping students to understand why does that language matter, even though it's different from yours? I actually always have seen that uh, schools will say, oh, well, listen, if there are five people at the table and three of them speak Korean, but two don't, everyone then speaks English. What do we do when in that situation? How do you coach students and teachers and head of schools? I think one, we have to sort of step way back. If we go back to um, that iceberg model and think like, what's the underlying mindset there? And, and reflections that I've had with teachers, for example, who have this belief of, well, I can't let students not speak in English in my classroom because I don't know what they're saying. Um, and so, we kind of unpack and say, okay, so you're afraid because you're responsible for the learning of these students that you won't be able um, to help them or to guide their learning. And then I kind of like turn it on. So let's say they're all speaking in English and you have six groups of four going on right now and you are talking to this one group. How do you know, even though it's in English, what the group in the farthest corner uh, is talking about right now and if they're on task. And they're like, well, I, I don't, I don't know that. <laughs> and so saying, okay, so then why does it matter what language that they're speaking in to do that learning if you can't monitor their comprehension or assessment or anything anyway? And that oftentimes will help people see like, oh, that that doesn't make sense. But I think there, there is a... So many teachers, so many leaders, they have a fear that they are not going to support their students in, in learning. And so I think we just need to continually make it clear to everyone that allowing students to access autonomous, autonomously the language that is most beneficial to their learning is the best instructional move that will leverage um, learning. And so I think helping people see it doesn't really matter at the end of the day uh, which language they're using uh, in order to get to make learning happen, then we're going to sort of 
advocate for best practice and for our learners. Let's talk about the last level, which is the personal level. What do you recommend for a DEIJ in terms of working with multilingual learners at the personal level? At that level, it's really about helping students to value their own identities. And in our society today, the way that you know media is consumed and designed and tends to be very US English centric, it's again reminding people that even though who you are doesn't look like who's on your Hollywood screen or um, uh, who's in the digital magazine that you're looking at or who's on your TikTok doesn't mean that that doesn't have value. And it's helping people to identify within their own identity and who they are and help them to share that identity with pride in our in our learning spaces and because we talk there is again like a lot of these issues come down to fear right i mean that we trace it back to those colonizer roots of you know a colonizer comes in and the first thing that they want is control uh, of that space and there is a fear of losing that control and in our students it I've talked to many, many students uh, who are who are multilingual, and being multilingual requires a tremendous amount of courage because you are going to make mistakes. There is no way you can learn multiple languages without making mistakes. And so to make students feel safe in taking those risks that are required um, to advance in multiple languages, we need to create safe learning spaces for our students. Um, so that involves modeling mistakes, celebrating mistakes, and stamping out and issues where um, maybe students are being um, teased when they take risks um, and, and really elevating those mistakes. I always talk about, um, you know, in the language research, right, it talks about assimilations or approximations instead of calling them errors. Um, and that's really important in that work is like acknowledging, you know, for example, if a student says, um, you know, I go to the store, well, that's amazing <laughs> because you have applied a, a rule to something that doesn't fit um, a pattern. But so it's celebrating students um, when they say, well, I see what you did there um, and here's how we can say it in a different way. Or if a student who is, uh, you know, our youngest learners and um, do a lot of um, translanguaging or pulling on their linguistic resources, you know, when they say, um, Mr. I'm going to submit my work uh, um, on Seesaw and say, oh, that's, really interesting. I see what you did there. When you said submitir, you were applying this Spanish rule that you know really well, And but here's how that works and in English. And so uh, creating that safe space where, you know, your languaging strategies are celebrated instead of um, asking students, oh, I, you, told, you said that wrong, do it again, or 
you you use Spanglish, like say it again in proper English. Uh, anytime we make sort of a, a comment like that, um, we create unsafe spaces um, for our learners. And so I think it's really, really important to support the internalized um, growth of our students to allow them to flourish. We need to value their language, their identity, and then any, uh, for want of a better word, mistakes that they make along the way, uh, because that's an essential part of the multilingual journey. Well, you have really helped us see how we can change our policies at the ideological, institutional, interpersonal, and personal level. I will recommend teachers read this podcast, schools read it and study it together, and it may plant a seed to say, well, let's look in the mirror, Let's look at our policies. How can we make it truly more inclusive? So, Matt, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I know that you listen to the podcast, so let's end with traffic light teaching. What is something you ask teachers to stop doing, start doing, continue doing in, when, in terms of working with their multilingual learners? Yeah. Um, so the immediate stop is any system if you are still working in a system or in a classroom where the goal is subtractive bilingualism or it's an english only approach it, that's just it's a hard stop and it's an urgent stop because it is a harmful practice and so i know that everyone who's listening out there does not want to harm their learners and so we really need to challenge a system that is intentionally harmful and, and exclusive. And so uh, I wish everyone a lot of courage. <laughs> and I know that there are a lot of advocates out there. And but it's, it's a hard stop. We need to um, embrace multilingualism and welcome uh, all of our students into the learning space. As far as and continue, I think I always see uh, teachers using scaffolding practices to support their learners. And I think I want to continue to see people doing that and in really intentional ways, because we are very clear if we leverage strategies that support multilingualism, we are going to benefit all learners. And the bilingual brain, the multilingual brain is better. And, and so the more that we can continue to use strategies that support multilingualism and translanguaging, the more we are going to serve all of the learners in our class, whether they're monolingual or multilingual. And as a start, Practice, a practice, I would start asking why. If you see something that doesn't feel right in your heart, ask why. And I don't think we should be afraid um, to engage in discourse um, about why. Because when we really step back and, and, and think about equi what's equitable and just, and often people just haven't asked why these, these 
sort of systems based on English only are a part of histories of institutions of the United States and, and, and other countries where one language is seen as superior to others. There's a historical and reference there and we need to question it by asking why because we can't in education ever just do something because that's how it was always done before so i would encourage people to start asking why one language is positioned as better than others in your institution if that is that is the case well, my question why is, why don't we have more Mad Haydens in schools around the world? Well, I want there to be more Tom also, so. <laughs> yeah, been an... We can make that happen. <laughs> There's a book in you waiting to be written, Matt. We just need this toddler to uh, start taking care of himself a little bit more. <laughs> So that that uh, book will be written in a few years. That's that. <laughs> once once he gets up, once he uh, can take care of himself more. Exactly. <laughs> well, Matt, muchas gracias para tu tiempo, for your wisdom, and for your guidance. Muchísimas gracias a ti por este espacio, and let's keep fighting the equitable fight for our language learners. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast. My invitation is to check out my three courses on English Learner Portal. One is on creating the conditions for MLs to thrive, one on teacher collaboration, and one based on my co-authored book with Beth Skelton called Long-Term Success for Experienced Multilinguals. Now, on to our recap. Everyone at the International School of Phnom Penh is supposed to be part of a school-wide committee. Among the options were the whole school language policy. I immediately joined that group because I wanted to be part of crafting a policy that would be in place long after the committee disbanded. I wanted to join something that directly impacts teaching and learning of multilingual students. The first sentence of our policy now reads, International School Phnom Penh is a multilingual community. How inclusive and how affirming is that first sentence? It boldly stands by all languages and stands beside students and their families. By joining it, you will put a conversation about DEIJ into practice and policy. If you get to be part of your school's language policy, please consider joining it. Your influence might positively shape the experience of the students you will never meet. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. 